Well, good morning, church. You're going to take your Bibles out with me as we turn our attention to God's Word and open up with me to the book of Genesis. Uh, we're looking this morning at chapter 41, and if you're looking at the black Bible in the chair that you're sitting in, that should be found on page 34 and 35 of that black Bible. I'll give you a moment to be there, get there with me. And as always, we encourage you to keep your Bible open and follow along as we read and discuss and think uh, about God's word, asking that the Lord would help us to understand and apply it to our lives. Keep your finger in Genesis 41. You don't need to turn to the Psalms, but one of the things I love about the Psalms is how the Psalms teach truth by painting a picture. You can kind of think of a, as a Psalm as a, a, a canvas in which God as the artist is teaching through the paintbrush. And one of the word pictures that I love in the book of Psalms is in Psalm 84. In verse 5 of Psalm 84 states the truth. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are the highways to Zion. So the, the believer is pictured as a pilgrim journeying through this life to know God and love God and to follow God. And then the word picture continues on in verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. The, the valley of Baca in Psalm 84 is the Hebrew for the valley of weeping. It's a term that describes a painful place in life that seems hopeless. But what the psalmist is showing us is that as pilgrims walk with God and walk through the desert wastelands of the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. In other words, God transforms the dry desert wasteland into a lush green paradise for those who find their strength in God. What a beautiful picture for the people of God, especially when you find yourself in that valley of weeping. Well, we've been walking with Joseph uh, ever since chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. And after God gave Joseph two dreams in chapter 37, dreams that were pointing forward, they're kind of God's word to Joseph about his future exaltation. Amazing dreams, God's word to Joseph. Well, all that happens after those dreams is he sinks lower and lower into a dark valley of weeping. Betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit and left to die, sold into slavery in Egypt, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and then locked in prison. Joseph has gone from one pit to another pit for the past 11 years. Well, last week in chapter 40, after he helps the cupbearer by interpreting his dream, the cupbearer gets out. It finally seems like there's a glimmer of hope that maybe Joseph will get out of prison. But if you remember how chapter 40 ends, he doesn't get out. Instead, he sinks deeper into this dark valley of weeping. Chapter 40, verse 23 ends saying, the chief cupbearer did not remember him, but forgot him. So there's Joseph, forgotten in prison, left waiting in prison 
for two more years. But I want us to skip ahead. We're going to take a sneak peek into the end of our chapter this morning. So look at me at chapter 41, verse 51. If you're, if you're like me, sometimes you just want to sneak ahead to the end and look at the end. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What a wonderful picture. We kind of see Psalm 84 working out in reality in his life. Joseph's still in prison. He's still in the land of his affliction. But we see this dry valley of weeping being transformed into this green, lush garden because he's finding his strength in God. God made him fruitful in the land of affliction. That's wonderful, right? I mean, who of us wants to be able to say that God has made us fruitful even in the land of affliction? You want that? Sign me up, right? How do we do this? How does it happen? What do we need as the people of God to be fruitful in the land of affliction? Well, if you're taking notes, point number one is this. Trust the God of perfect timing. Trust the God of perfect timing. And we're going to see this point in verses 1 through 14 of our text. So let's look at God's word starting in verse 1 of chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, awoke and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Ah, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. So chapter 41 begins, and we're told that Pharaoh has two dreams. Joseph had two dreams in 37. The baker and the cupbearer had two dreams. Now Pharaoh has two dreams. 
And the first dream had seven attractive, healthy, plump cows coming out of the Nile River after eating the reeds there, then only to be eaten by seven ugly and thin cows. Kind of a nightmare if you ask me. It's a wonder he's troubled, right? The second dream was similar. Seven healthy ears of grain were swallowed up by seven thin and blighted ears of grain. So when Pharaoh awakes, verse 8 tells us that he, his spirit was troubled. He was anxious. He was distressed. He was bothered. Think about it. For years, the, the Nile River was a, a, a source of water that created a stable economy and a rich agriculture for Egypt. So it might be a desert wasteland, but you get the Nile River. It's going to produce stability for the land. But what did these dreams mean? The wise in Egypt, the magicians were gathered together, but they couldn't help them. No one could interpret the dreams. And so Egypt's ruler is left in this place of distress and a troubled spirit, and he's helpless. Nothing he can do. But after years of waiting, 13 years of waiting, Joseph is quickly, we're told, brought up out of the pit. After taking a shower, presumably, changing his prison clothes to be presentable for Pharaoh and shaving, Joseph finds himself standing before Pharaoh, the ruler of the mightiest empire on earth in that time. Notice the time marker in verse one. It says, after two whole years. I was talking to Pastor Tyrone this week and we were talking about this and he says, why two years? That's a good question. Why two years? Why not one year? (laughs) Or better yet, if you're Joseph, why not two weeks? Here's the answer. I don't know. And Pharaoh didn't know. God knew. And God, who knew how long it was necessary, God was at work in Joseph during those 13 years of being enslaved to Potiphar or being locked in prison. Remember what we looked at in Romans 5 last week. Paul writes, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why, Paul? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God's at work within Joseph, producing this character, producing this hope, producing this realization of God's presence and his love. God knew down to a second how long it would take to cultivate the hope and the character that was necessary to be developed within Joseph through that trial. That's why it was two years. But it's also interesting, it's, God not only knew how long it would take to develop this character and hope with him, God also knew, I think, Joseph's limits. God is a, God is a tender God. God is a compassionate God. God. God knows us intimately. He knows our limits. He knows our frame. He knows our unique strengths and he knows our unique weaknesses. Not every one of us is created the same. And God knows you uniquely. And God knew Joseph uniquely. He knew if if it goes another minute or day, it might break him. He knew his limits. 
And so God, as this tender, compassionate, intimately knowing us God, said two years. He's the God who provides a way of escape in every temptation. Well, desperate to get out two years earlier, Joseph no doubt wrestled during those two years of waiting. He had a glimmer of hope with the cupbearer, and now the door was shut. And I imagine him asking in these two years of waiting, where is God? What is God doing? How long? (laughs) And friends, perhaps like Joseph in those two years of waiting, that's where you find yourself this morning. Waiting. How long? You don't know. But you're waiting on God for a job. You're waiting on God for healing. You're waiting for God and change in a relationship or a change that needs to happen in your life or change that needs to happen in another person's life that you love. You're waiting on God for relief. You're waiting on God for peace. And friends, waiting stinks. And in times of waiting, we're tempted to take charge, to take the steering wheel and to do what we want rather than to keep waiting on God. Or rather than taking control, we might be tempted to just simply despair. But listen, if Joseph had gotten out two years earlier like he had hoped, he would not have had an audience with Pharaoh. He wouldn't be in a position like he is right now to interpret the dreams of the king of Egypt. And if, if, if it didn't happen at this timing, countless lives would have been lost in a seven-year famine that no one was prepared for, including Joseph's family, the family of God from whom would come the Messiah. God knew what he was doing. God is never late, friends. We may not know his timetable. We may not know how long it's going to take or what God's up to, but we can know that God is at work. We can know that God is work for our good and he is at work for our glory. And so we don't have to lean on our own understanding of things. We can trust the God of perfect timing. First Baptist, trust the God of perfect timing. If we're gonna be fruitful in the land of affliction, we need to do that. Trust the God of perfect timing. But point number two, we must also trust the God who rules all. Point number two, trust the God who rules all. We're gonna see this in verses 15 through 36 of our text. So let's look again at God's word in verse 15. Pick up the story there. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And in the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind spreaded after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. 
and I told it to the magicians. But there was no one who could explain it to me. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. So when Pharaoh brings Joseph in, after 13 years of waiting, brings Joseph in and says, listen, I hear you can interpret dreams. I mean, after walking with Joseph for 13 years, we're like, finally, this is your chance, man. This is your chance to get out. Just step into your shoes. Step into the shoes of Joseph for that, for that second. Joseph has suffered as a slave for 13 years or a prisoner for 13 years. You, you've been waiting a long time to get out, right? You don't want to let this opportunity slip through your fingers. You don't want to blow it. So he says, I, I understand you can interpret dreams. But look at his answer in verse 16. Joseph answered, Pharaoh, it is not in me. Uh, I'm like, come on, man. This is your chance. And he's essentially saying to Pharaoh, I cannot do it. I am not able to. I'm like, come on, man. Joseph, if, if, if Pharaoh needs your help, don't you want to make yourself indispensable? This is your job interview. But instead of pointing to himself and saying, yeah, I've been known to interpret a dream or two, he, he doesn't. He's truthful. He's, I can't do it. Instead, he puts the spotlight on God. He makes much of God. He's, it is not in me, Pharaoh. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph's response is honest. But let's not miss, it's also risky. He's been waiting 13 years. Pharaoh might hear him say, I can't do it, and just say, okay, fine, go back to prison then. And, and, Pharaoh, and, and Joseph's overlooked, and he's back to where he started. But Joseph's answer, had, I think, reveals something to us about his heart. Joseph's answer reveals his confidence in God. He doesn't need to lie. He doesn't need to promote himself. 
He's able to freely tell the truth and leave the results to God. Why? Because he trusts the God who rules all. What about you? What about me? When I look at myself in the mirror here, it's it's just kind of convicting. Are you eager for the people around you to notice your accomplishments? Are you hoping that they'll see your abilities, your gifting, your rewards, what you're capable of? I mean, kind of life sometimes feels like this, life sometimes feels like this big job interview where we need to make ourselves impressive to the people around us. I mean, it might show up, maybe you're not so upfront about it, maybe we are more sneaky about it. It it might show up as a false humility, you know, fishing for compliments. This meal that I made is terrible, isn't it? And this sermon I'm preaching is just awful, right? I might as well throw this painting I made for you in the trash because it stinks, right? What are we doing when we're having this false humility? We're hoping the other person will say, no, this is, this is amazing. You're gifted. We see your abilities. We see your accomplishments. Look at you. Or we might not do it with false humility. We might, we might just post certain pictures online or videos online. I mean, everybody does it. But our hearts are just hoping that someone out there in the Internet will be impressed. Maybe someone will even be jealous of our abilities, accomplishments, of where I went to vacation, what I ate last, I mean, whatever you want to post, right? Or if our hard work or our achievements go unnoticed by our boss at work or our family at home or our friends at school, we might become angry, we might become grumpy or bitter. Whatever the case, what does our need to be noticed or appreciated, say about our hearts. It might suggest that in that moment, we don't trust God. It might suggest that in that moment, we trust our performance. We're we're looking for security in our performance, in our abilities, in something that we can do that makes us feel in that moment like we're in control. But not Joseph. Now, after 13 years of clearly not being in control, Joseph's trust in God, who rules all, has grown so deep that it sets him free to just tell the truth and leave the results to God. Well, after Pharaoh retells his dreams, Joseph then turns around and, by God's grace and his help, interprets the dreams. The seven cows and seven ears of grain represent seven years. After seven years of abundance and bumper crops like Egypt hasn't seen before, Egypt will then have seven years of famine, terrible famine that they have not seen before. But the dreams are not just about the future. They're also about God's sovereignty. The dreams are also about God being in control. You see, at this time in history, Egypt was a global superpower. And Pharaoh was, was a ruler that was on the, on, on the verge of being like a, a godlike king. Whatever he wants, he gets. He is, the, he is the authority of authorities in the land. But look at verse 25. Joseph 
<laughs> Slave, prisoner, now brought before this Pharaoh, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Who's in charge about what's gonna happen in the next 14 years? God is. He's showing Pharaoh what God is about to do. And in Pharaoh's helplessness, he can't even interpret his own dreams. The wise men can't interpret the dreams. The magician can't interpret the dreams. He's troubled. Joseph is reminding the king, Pharaoh, in his moment of helplessness, who is in charge. It's God. The seven years of abundance and famine are what God is about to do. It's interesting. Joseph's courage before this ruler stands out as a stark contrast to what we saw in his brother, Judah, back in chapter 38. Judah was driven by fear. Judah's, Judah's concern in chapter 38 was, that, was what people thought of him. He was, he was driven by this concern that people would laugh at him. And his fear of man drove him deeper into darker and darker sins with him and the people around him. But in contrast, Joseph is not afraid of man. Joseph stands confident before the most powerful man on earth because he feared God more than he feared man. Well, how did he get there? Joseph feared God because he knew God. And he knew God because he knew God's word. Look again at verse 25. God has revealed through this dream, God was speaking not only to Pharaoh, he was speaking to Joseph. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So friends, if you struggle with fear, if you struggle with insecurity, and we all do in different ways, the way to overcome that fear, the way to overcome that insecurity is not by looking in the mirror and trying to make yourself look great. The way to overcome that fear is by looking up at God, by digging into the Bible where God reveals himself as great and awesome and as the one who rules all. Another place we see God's rule in this section is in verse 32. Look at verse 32 again. He says, the, Pharaoh, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this, the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. God does the fixing, God does the bringing it about. And Pharaoh's dream, the, the fact that it came in pairs meant that, it, it, Joseph saw that, 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 that it came in pairs meant two things. Number one, it's fixed by God. This is guaranteed, it's gonna happen. Second, the fact that it was two dreams meant that God is gonna do it shortly. It's gonna happen soon. Just in, just in a little bit of time. And so if, if Pharaoh doubts God's word to him, he could just keep on living, ignore this interpretation given by Joseph and keep on living business as usual. But if Pharaoh believes God's word to him, then it means that something has to change. Pharaoh has to act on God's word as an expression of that belief. Fast forward to our day today. Jesus has promised us, the church, in Revelation chapter 22, behold, I am coming soon. How long is soon? Just a short time, right? 
And his point is, is that that final day when Jesus comes back as he has promised to sit on his throne and judge the world, he's saying it is both fixed by God, it's going to happen, it's guaranteed, and it's soon. Church, do you believe that? Do we believe that? How we live reveals whether or not we actually believe Jesus. If we live, Jesus says he's coming soon, and if we live as if this world is the most important thing, that what we watch on ESPN late this afternoon is the most important thing, and what we do at work is the most important thing, if we believe that what happens in this world is the most important, if we prioritize the things of this earth over the things of heaven, if we prioritize the praise of man more than the praise of God, we only show that we don't actually believe that Jesus is coming soon. How would you live differently if you believed that Jesus was coming soon? Would it change the way that you think about your belongings and your bank account? Would it change the bitterness that you're holding on to because of a conflict that you're in? Would it transform what you rejoice in or what you mourn over? Would it change the way that you think of or interact with others during another presidential election? Jesus made it clear in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. <laughs> There's not a blade of grass or a distant galaxy that does not belong to him and is under his rule. He is the king. And he is sovereign over the rolling of dice, over weather patterns, over nature, over disease, over demons, over Satan, over death itself. He rules over nations and kings. He turns the heart of a king like a man turns water in the palm of his hand. He rules all. And so if we're going to be fruitful in the land of affliction, we need to believe that. We need to trust the God who rules all. Point three, and our last point. To be fruitful in the land of affliction, point three, trust the God who exalts the humble. Trust the God who exalts the humble. This is verses 37 through 57. Look with me at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And the Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around about his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee! And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Joseph said, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one, shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage 
Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Pharaoh went out over the land of Egypt, and Joseph was 30 years. That's the marker. He, started, he was sold into slavery when he was 17, now he's 30. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields about it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. We'll pause there for a second. So Joseph's interpretation was both honest and difficult. Seven years of abundance, also followed by seven severe years of famine. But his interpretation also came with a wise proposal. Listen, Pharaoh, during the years of plenty, store up 20% of all the grain so that you have food to sustain people during the seven years of famine. Put people in charge of building the, 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 the elevators or the grain stacks and, and, and gathering the grain and, and storing that food for the famine. And so Pharaoh and his officials listen to Joseph and they take notice. That sounds like a good plan. But they take notice not because Joseph graduated with honors from the top agricultural or community development college in, college in Egypt. He didn't go to Cornell, he didn't go to Harvard, he didn't go to the top schools in Egypt. No. In verse 38, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? That's why they took notice. Being a slave and a prisoner for the past 13 years, it may have seemed like Joseph was missing out on his opportunity. How's he gonna get an education? How's he gonna get a job? How's he gonna get ahead? He's just stuck in prison. He's stuck in slavery for 13 years. He's losing his chance. Maybe he felt that way. But in the end, he had something far better than any college degree, ability, or gift could offer anyone. He had God with him. God was with Joseph. Friends, pray, pray the same is said for the members of First Baptist. That after people meet us, they're not impressed with our accomplishments. They're not impressed with our education or our degrees or whatever it is that we think is impressive about us. But rather that when they get done with meeting with one of us, that they say, ah, there's someone who's been with Jesus. G Joseph is noticed. He's pulled up out of the pit and he's given Pharaoh's signet ring, which is a symbol of the authority of the Pharaoh. It put a gold chain around his neck. And verse 43 says, He, Pharaoh, made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Remember, remember Pharaoh, or Joseph's dream back in 37. Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. He'd waited 13 years. And within a 24-hour period, <laughs> Joseph went from being prisoner to prime minister of Egypt. Everybody, everybody seemed really pleased with the arrangement. But what if you're Potiphar's wife? What if you're the one who falsely accused Joseph? 
and got him in prison all those years. And now he's the man that Pharaoh is saying, bow your knee to him. He's in charge of you. He can do whatever he wants with you. Now that Joseph's in power, second in command, prime minister of Egypt, did you see in the text how Joseph got revenge of Potiphar's wife? Do you see it? Nope. It's not there. But what we do see in the text is Joseph busy at work, working hard, building storehouses, gathering up grain that would soon become the salvation of a people that would be starving in a famine. I think Joseph is an example for us here. It's a hard example to follow, but it's, it's important for us. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul explains that one of the ways that we work out our salvation is by doing all things without grumbling. If you're like me, sometimes that's a really hard command to obey. We need the Holy Spirit to do that. In the office, at home, in school, or wherever, if you work hard without complaining, grumbling, self-pity, Paul says that you will shine like lights. You'll stick out. In the, in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation that is also marked by grumbling and complaining. That's part of the reason that you stick out. And, and listen, that doesn't mean that, this does not mean that Joseph was indifferent about the wrongs and the injustice that was done to him. But it seems that rather than taking vengeance into his own hands and avenging himself, he leaves it to the wrath of God. He leaves it in the hands of a God who sees, who cares for him, and who will make it right as he promises he will in Romans 12, verse 19. Let's go back to the story here in verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second was Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to to you, do. So, when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. The names that Joseph gives to his two sons are significant. They carry a lot of meaning here. So look at, look at me at verse 51 again. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. You'll see in your footnote there, the ESV, Manasseh is the Hebrew word meaning making forget. Right? So <clears throat> knowing how painful the last 13 years of his life had been, it's understandable that Joseph might want to forget those last 13 years, right? But... By naming your kid, forget, 
Aren't you reminding yourself of the very thing you're trying to forget? I think part of what's going on here is by forget, he doesn't mean what we tend to think by forget. By forget, Joseph, doesn't, Joseph does not mean that God would come and erase his memory with a, a neuralizer or some science fiction tool where you, you just flash this light and your memory is erased. No, he doesn't mean that. You can't, you can't just forget the painful past that he had been through. I think what he's saying is that the scars from his past, they may not disappear. He may carry the scars from those past 13 years all his life. But now, by forget, he means he'd see them from a different perspective. Every time he says, Manessa, forget, forget, making forget, he would remember that instead of being abandoned by God like he for, maybe he felt like he was, those scars would be a reminder and a testimony of God's presence with him the whole time. It'd be a testimony of God's faithfulness to keep his word. It'd be a testimony of a God who has the power to redeem the past. As the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has made everything, everything beautiful in its time. And the preacher's point in Ecclesiastes is that God, our God is one who for his people takes every thread, every event in your life, good and bad, and he's weaving together everything into this beautiful tapestry, including the painful, gut-wrenching, I want to throw up threads of your life. And he weaves them together, making everything beautiful in its time. Making something good for his people. And what's interesting is, is I think that by God's grace, Joseph began to see the beauty, the beautiful tapestry that God had been weaving together. God gives him a sneak peek. And he names his second son Ephraim. Verse 52. Why? For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Ephraim sounds like making fruitful in Hebrew. So Joseph, Joseph had longed and prayed for years for God to take him out of slavery, for God to take him out of prison, for God to get him out of Egypt so he can go back home. But God's plan for Joseph was not for him to leave Egypt, but to be fruitful in the land of his affliction. In Egypt. He doesn't leave Egypt. He just becomes fruitful in Egypt. And so the painful scars of his past, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, put in prison, all these painful scars of his past, which once did not make sense and were ugly to him, these scars, which are still there, have become beautiful. He's seeing what God is doing. And he sees it as thousands of families come to him. And from his scar-ridden body, he hands out the life-saving grain to those who would die had Joseph not been there. Well, that's cool. That's good for Joseph. But I don't think many of us are planning on running for prime minister of Egypt. So what has his story got to do with us today? Well, I think if we step back and just look at 
the Joseph story as a whole, what you see is this U-shape pattern in Joseph's life. He went from being the favored son of Jacob with the coat of many colors, and then he goes down to the pit of slavery, down into the pit of prison, down into the pit of being forgotten. But here in chapter 41, he goes to being exalted to prime minister. You see this U-shaped pattern for his life. And that U-shaped pattern that we see in Joseph's life, I think serves as a signpost. Joseph serves as a signpost pointing forward to Jesus. He points us forward to Jesus, who had a similar U-shaped pattern in his life. It's that U-shaped path that we read about together in Philippians 2 this morning. Jesus, who in eternity past existed in wonderful and perfect fellowship and love in the glory of God the Father, seeing the plight of sinful man in love, humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, born in the likeness of man. And then he went lower. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, but a really low death. The death that was reserved for the lowest of criminals on a cross. He went to the lowest of lows. And then Philippians 2.9 says, therefore, great word, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You hear the echo from Joseph? In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see the U-shaped pattern in Joseph. You see the U-shaped pattern in Jesus. And what's amazing about Jesus' U-shaped life is that he takes his people with him in the same U-shaped path. Where's Leah? Is Leah here? Leah, right there. Okay, Leah. This is what we celebrate in your baptism this morning. It's what your baptism illustrates. When you go down in the water, that's the grave. When you come up out of the water, you're going with Jesus. When you, Leah, when you put your faith in Jesus, you were united to Christ by faith. So that where he goes, you go. And so uh, Jesus calls each of us to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to put our life, the life that we once lived for ourselves in the grave, put it to death and to follow Jesus. So Leah, united with Christ, you have humbled yourself, you trust him, you put your old life in the grave with Jesus because you're trusting him, but united to Christ, he also raises us up with him, he's raised you up with him in his resurrection. Sister, we, you have been raised with Christ. You've been set free to say no to sin and yes to your Lord Jesus. You are fully loved, Leah. You have been set free. You are his, and he will exalt you in the days to come. Friends, it's not just true for Leah. That's just true for all of us. And the exaltation is not something that we will necessarily see in this side of heaven, but it's a glorification. It's an exaltation that is promised for us on the other side of Jesus' return or our death. So friends, if you are not yet a Christian, we're glad that you're here, but we want you to know that Christ Jesus, in his love for you, stepped into a pit that was 
infinitely worse than Joseph's pit. And Jesus, in his love for you, died a death that we deserve to die for our sin. He died to pay the penalty for your sin and mine that we could not afford to pay on our own if you trust in him. On the third day, he rose again. He came up out of the grave, the U-shaped pattern. He rose again. He's exalted at the right hand of God the Father. That's where Jesus is. And it's not enough for you just to know that. It's not enough for, even, for you to even sit here this morning as a non-Christian and to agree that that's true. I, I hope you do agree that that's true. But you must act. You personally. No one can do this for you. Your mom and your dad. If you're a child, your mom and your dad cannot decide this for you. If you're, if you're 80 years old, you, it doesn't matter what family you came. You have to decide for yourself. You have to act on what you have heard about Jesus. What will you do with him? Will you trust him? Will you bend your knee to the king of kings and lord of lords and give him your life and obey him and trust him? Or will you leave this place this morning, ignore him, and live how you want? You can do that for a while. But one day, every knee will bow. One day, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His delay in allowing us to live and to hear his word today is God's patience with us. It's his mercy with us. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised that we're gonna live tomorrow. We're not promised that Jesus won't come today. He might come before the end of this sermon. So the delay that God gives us, the time that he gives us is a chance for us to repent. It's a chance for us to trust in Christ, stop trusting ourselves and to trust in Jesus. But there's coming a day when that, that opportunity will be gone and that door will be shut. So I plead with you, my non-Christian friend, don't put it off any longer. Turn from your sin. Turn away from your self-reliance. None of us are good enough. That's why we're here as, as church members. And put your faith, put your hope, put your trust in Christ alone. Now, does that mean if you put your faith and trust in Christ that life will be easier for you? <laughs> no? Thank you. Not necessarily. It, it, it very likely will get harder for you. But we trust him because he's worthy of our life. We trust him because he's the God who exalts the humble. But it's hard putting your life that you've been building to make much of yourself in the grave. Because what if he's not telling the truth? What if he doesn't exalt the humble? How can we know that God will keep his word to exalt the humble? There's one place you can look. Jesus' tomb. The tomb is empty. If it's filled, forget everything I'm saying. Go home and watch NFL football. But if it's true, if the grave is empty, then, it's, then he is worthy of your life. And he will lift you up. He will exalt you in due time. Pro 1 Peter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your patience and your mercy in our lives. We thank you for Jesus who, though he did not have to in the sense that there was something in us that made us worthy of his life and his death and his resurrection. We thank you that in his love for us and in his love for you and his commitment to your glory, 
he went low so that he could bring us up from the pit of hell and sin and death. And not because we've been good people, not because we are worthy, but because of your grace, we thank you for your promise that those who trust in you, those who repent, those who humble themselves before you and give their lives to you, you will lift up. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.